You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. We get to make our entrance. <laughs> Feels very dramatic. Yes. And here we are walking up the stairs. Yes. Woo. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Um, welcome. I'm Lauren Schiller, host of Inflection Point, which is a podcast from KLW 91.7 FM, which is all about how women rise up. And uh, I, I have a joke, which isn't seeming as funny as I'm looking at it on my page here, but <laughs> how do women rise up? First, we put down the laundry basket. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I love it. Thanks. <laughs> I got fans in the front. Okay. I am really excited to talk with Eve Rodsky tonight. Um, Ariana Huffington called her game-changing solution a category disruptor akin to Casper mattresses yeah. and Uber. <laughs> yes, I did say that. <laughs> and another reviewer called her the Marie Kondo of relationships. Just so you know what you're in for here, okay? Yes. Um, Eve has taken all the invisible stuff we do and made it visible. And not only that, she's made it distributable. So tonight we're going to talk about blueberries, yes, a man on a plane, and mustard. And we'll have time for questions at the end. <laughs> so, But first, we're going to take a quiz. Oh, yeah. Is everyone feeling ready to participate? This is a participatory evening. Yeah. Okay. All right, this is, this is from Eve's book. Uh, it's on page 30, well, 38 of the copy I have, um, which is called Who Said It When? Guess what year these statements were made by working men husbands? Choose between 1969 in Pat Minardi's famous piece, The Politics of Housework, or in Eve's 2018 interviews. Uh, so raise your hand. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll cue you here. So the, number one. I don't mind, this is from the men, I don't mind sharing the housework, but I don't do it very well. We should each do the things we're best at. 1969? Yes. Or 2018? So look at the... Oh, it's actually 1969. 1969. (laughs) We have a cynical crowd here. Okay. B, you are so much better at the home stuff than me. 1969? 2018. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, We we have different standards. Why should I have to work to your standards? That's unfair. 1969? 2018? Okay, it's 1969. That's 1969. Uh, Do you guys want to do more? There's like three more here. Three more, yes. She's in charge of the house. It's not my job. Yeah, just call it out. No, 2018. What I love, I'm taking credit for your great writing. No, it's great. Okay. Um, what great man would have accomplished what he did if he had to do his own housework? That better be fucking 1969. <laughs> so let's just skip that one. That was okay. 1969. It's right? 1969. Okay, good, okay good. and lastly, I make a living. I make her life. Why do I have to do dishes too? 2018. <laughs> this is not Amish places. This is like people in very progressive cities. I'll just let you know that. <laughs> like San Francisco? Yeah, like San Francisco. <laughs> okay. Um, so, Eve, I, let's, let's just start with how and why you came up with this system. I mean, obviously why you came up with the system of fair play. 
Sure. Um, I like to say that this is a book I was born to write. I'm the product of a single mother. Um, and so early on, it's probably why I became an organizational management specialist. I would help her put her late utility bills in one pile and eviction notices in one pile. And I vowed from that early age, around eight, that this would never be me, that I would have a true partner in life. And I did. I, I married that true partner. And we were killing it in business and life. He was very supportive of my career. He would stay up late quizzing me for my dream job and philanthropy interview. I marked up his operating agreements and saved him lots of legal fees. We took turns doing the dishes. We took turns making each other dinner. And then cut to, cut to two kids later. Some of you have read it already in the book. I find myself sobbing on the side of the road over a text my husband Seth sent me. And it just said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. And you can picture the scene. I, ha- I just had a new baby. A new- my second son, Ben, was just born. It was the, I am on uh, the side of the road sobbing with a breast pump and a diaper bag in my passenger seat. I have new uh, returns for a new baby in the back seat of the car because, God forbid, they have more than a 30-day return policy for clothes. I have a client contract on my lap with a pen sort of sticking me in the vagina as I'm trying to mark it up at every red light traffic stop. Um, as I'm zooming to pick up my older son, Zach, who's about almost turning three at the time, in his toddler transition program. And in America, since we really value working mothers, those programs are like 10 minutes long. <laughs> so I was trying to zoom back. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm probably going to get into an accident if I'm crying and my contract's going to get all runny. <laughs> so I pulled over to the side of the road. I just started crying. I knew I was going to be late to pick up Zach. But... That was a day I always say, thank God Seth sent me that text. We're still married. We're very happily married, playing fair play. But back then, it felt like my breaking point. And I said to myself, you know, I'm, I'm done. This is not the career marriage combo I thought I was going to have. Um, and I knew so many women probably were feeling the same way because I'm trained to use my voice. I'm a Harvard-trained mediator. I am a single mother who... I'm a product of a single mother who vowed this wouldn't happen to me. Um, I went to my first Equal Rights Amendment march when I was 15 months old. I was there. You were? We oh were my there God. together. Yeah, together. Totally. And it was still happening to me. So I went on a quest to find out if that was true. And the good news for fair play, the bad news for society is that it was happening to lots of other women too. Yeah. Well, let's, I, I, since you mentioned your mom and you mentioned that March and maybe if I look, go back through old photos, I can find you as an infant. Oh yes. Yeah. I, I have, a, I have that photo. <laughs> I was only like seven, but yeah. anyway, um, so your mom, tell us about your mom a little bit and growing up with her and, and, and like what you used to do for fun on your birthday. Oh yeah. So, um, my mother, we didn't have a lot of money for, you know, fancy birthday gifts. And even if we did, I'm not sure she would have given me any cause she doesn't really believe in possessions, but um, instead, what we would do on my birthday is she said she would give me the gift of being the change I want to see in the world. That's the Gandhi quote. And so what we did was she said we'd look, I could look at anything I wanted, any civic engagement that was happening in Washington, D.C. We lived in New York City. And so around my birthday, she said she'd buy me a Greyhound bus ticket and we'd pack lunch and we'd go down and usually it was a march. So every year on my birthday, starting around seven, um, we'd go to Washington, D.C. and we'd march for whatever social justice, civic engagement thing was happening at the time. 
And I think it really impacted me because, A, obviously it's this idea of not materialism. B, it's this idea of, you know, birthdays being gratitude for other people. But C, it was the camaraderie to understand that if you go and there's other people there, there's more people than you who are caring about an issue, and that leads you to do more. And so that was also like the beauty, my love letter to you. Fair play was a, is a love letter to women because, and it's also become a love letter to men because I get to share your stories. And that's sort of the beauty of the march of this idea that we're all in this together. And the, it was the cathartic thing for me was that it wasn't just a me problem. My favorite sociologist, C. Wright Mills says, public, private lives, public issues. And I realized this was a, a serious public issue. Yeah. Well, you, so in stark contrast to your moment on the side of the road, you tell a story in the book about being on an airplane and checking out this dude across the aisle. Oh my gosh. You just shared the story kind of what epiphany that brought for you. (laughs) Absolutely. So, um, the man on the plane, I call this case of the man on the plane, my cousin and I, right when I was discovering all these issues, getting to consciousness about what was happening, I was becoming the default or like I like to say in the book, the she fault for every single thing for my household and family, regardless of whether we work outside the home. Women do two-thirds of what it takes to run a home and family, regardless of whether we work outside the home. So before, that was a statistic I was undeniably living, but I didn't know at the time. So around the time when I was undeniably living this, but didn't know it at the time, I was on a plane with my cousin. She was coming back to LA. She was coming out for work. I was coming home from a work trip. And we had our grab-and-go chicken Caesar wraps. We bought, went to Hudson News to buy presents for the kids. The second we enter boarding area, DirecTV decides to call me. I'd forgotten I'd schedule a satellite installation appointment from six months earlier. If anyone's ever dealt with AT&T, you don't want to ever deal with not taking that satellite appointment. So I'm trying to install a satellite dish for my, on FaceTime with these men at my house. My cousin, at the same time, her phone blows up. Her au pair didn't know where to go for soccer practice and didn't have the cleats or the shin guard. So she's sending him back home, the au pair back home, to get her stuff. We're having this very interactive uh, boarding session. As we get to our seats, my cousin, as I'm still on the phone with AT&T, realizes she left her laptop bag back in the boarding area. So we're pushing through to try to get back off the plane. I'm screaming to hold the plane. The first class flight attendants weren't that happy that people all the way back in coach were trying to disrupt the first class passengers. She gets off the plane. We get back on the plane. And it was this collective staring at us, like, ladies, get your shit together. Now, on the other side of the plane where you're sitting, this man walks on, and we became very interested in this man. Because he's about our age. He just takes out a laptop. He literally has no luggage. And we see sort of his screensaver. He has a really cute brunette and some kids on his screensaver. And he just starts typing. Just starts typing. And somehow he manages to finish a PowerPoint deck as we're in the air. And then my cousin keeps looking over and she's like, what is he doing? He's like solving world peace. He's like solving like calculus. Like he, was, he was using this sort of weird grid, this, ca- this geometric grid. And then he fell asleep. And then he was doing some candy crush on his phone. <laughs> And there was obviously no good movies on yeah, for you to I don't watch. Know. Like, <laughs> right. We were just, I don't know. We were just, became sort of obsessed with him. And about five hours into the flight from New York to LA, my cousin just looks at me and says, I just wish I was that man. And 
it was this idea, right, that what is the value of an unencumbered mind? It really is truly priceless. And Virginia Woolf talks about this almost 100 years ago, that Shakespeare couldn't have been a woman because her mind is too encumbered. And so that really got me thinking about the cost to women, right? The cost to women of being on our side of the plane and the motherhood penalty for being seen as being not having our shit together and what the beauty is. And so that set off this idea of the pricelessness of an unencumbered mind. So then from there, my passion, what I call my unicorn space, became this idea of how do we get women, how do we get women to have less of an encumbered mind? We're never going to have a fully unencumbered mind, but even if it's a little less, even if there's one less satellite dish appointment, and maybe we're just dealing with the au pair, it'll be a little bit better. Maybe I will have 20 minutes to play Candy Crush in the airport too. (laughs) Um, So what what I think is so interesting about your book, has has anyone here read, read the book yet? Okay. Okay. Great. That's great. Okay. So, in the book, you probably know, um, you 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 talk about the difference between equity, uh, equal, and equitable, or equal and equity. Yeah. Like that, the goal is actually not. So, all this stuff that we're responsible for, which, I mean, that is a whole other conversation. Is like, why are we the she fault? Mm-hmm. Actually, let me just ask you that. Okay, Did fine. we learn about that? Yes. Like, why are we the she fault? Great question. So. There's two phases. Well, I have three phases of research. So phase one was figuring out why we were the she fault by going through every single article and book, because I'm a really good researcher. My college roommate can tell you that, um, that had ever been written on the subject of the she, of what I call the she fault. And it turns out the she fault has a name, actually many names, second shift, mental load, emotional labor. But my favorite came out of a 1987 article by a sociologist named Arlene Kaplan Daniels, and her article was called Invisible Work. And why I love that one so much was because you can't value what you don't see. So what if, and this was my first foray into this idea of a solution, was what if, what if I made visible the invisible? And I finally showed Seth all that I do. And so that has led me on this mission to create what I call the shit I do spreadsheet. (laughs) And it was a really fun exercise that took me months. But what it started with was me writing down every single thing I did that took more than two minutes of a quantifiable time component. So you can't quantify love, but you can quantify how long it takes you to buy the flowers for the recital. So that became gestures of love in one of my Excel tabs. And slowly I started building, and I don't know if any of you have used Excel, but it had 98 tabs, um, 20 items of, of sub-tabs, over a thousand items of invisible work. And then I sort of sent it to my friends to say, what am I missing? And I had friends who say, well, you forgot sunscreen. I say, well, obviously you don't know how to use Excel then because it's tab 72 <laughs> under medical and healthy living. And you just didn't scroll down to item 21 because it's there. <laughs> or another woman who I didn't even know, literally a friend of a friend that found my list um, through the Jewish Federation in Arizona said that she noticed I didn't have allowance on there. And I said, well, then you really don't know how to read Excel because it's under tab 55. It's under family values and traditions. It's item number seven, because why else are you giving allowance unless it's to have some sort of family value? So I think people were like freaked out, but they were very happy that it was that thorough. 
And I finally get the courage after these months and months to send this 19 million megabyte spreadsheet off to my husband with the very eloquent mediator-like perfect communicator in me subject line that said, can't wait to discuss with no context other than that and just send it off into the ether and wait for his response. And I'm waiting and waiting and I finally get Seth Rodsky, you know, unread email in my inbox. I open up the email and it's just one monkey covering its eyes. That was it. I didn't even get the courtesy of the three monkey trio, which is so sad, (laughs) just the see no evil. And so obviously in my household, right, this had triggered a see no evil reaction. But what was happening in those women, like the Jewish Federation of Arizona women and other women who are reading the spreadsheet was that this shit I do list unleashed a shit storm. Really, truly, almost a do no harm because I had women saying to me, WTF, I'm doing it all. Another woman said to me, at this rate, after looking at this spreadsheet, I'm not going to stay in my marriage. And so I realized I had unleashed this rant, this rant without a solution. And every other book up until Fair Play, every other book had said, make a list. But there is a problem when you make a list sometimes, right? Because you enter consciousness. But if you don't have a solution once you're, when you're woke... And you just are sitting in that resentment. It actually can be worse before it gets better. And so that's where I realized I needed to put my mediator hat on and say, I do this for a living. I develop systems for very difficult families. And if that doesn't make sense to you, just picture the HBO show Succession. Those are my clients. So you should feel bad for me. But (laughs) the good news is that working with families like that, Um, I've had a decade of experience in mediation and systems building around shared values where even the most difficult clients who would walk, literally storm out of the room when their son would be speaking, can share and have communication with grace and humor and generosity around very difficult family issues. So if that can happen for those families, I thought, well, why not bring the same systems learning into ordinary households? And that's sort of how I de- started developing Fair Play. Yeah. I think in succession, the guy that had your role, like, ended up taking a header into the swimming pool. Oh, yeah, he died. Yeah, he, I think he got Oh, he killed. died? Or I don't know. Or maybe he... Like, oh, sorry. Spoiler. Oh. He definitely didn't die. Nothing happened. No, he didn't die. He didn't happened. die. <laughs> no, that guy didn't die. He didn't sorry, die. that's a different I think guy. people died. I promise. Not that guy. Sorry. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is what happens when you Succeed. go off the trips. Yeah. Right. Should Should I I show for me. Exactly. Sorry. Okay. Um, okay. So let's get to this equity question or versus equality question. Because, I mean, it seems like the, the very first place that you would go is like, okay, there are a hundred items on this list or a thousand items on this list or whatever it is for, for you or your family. So like, if I just give you, my partner, half 500, yeah. everything's good. Yeah. But you actually say that's not true. So talk, talk about that a little bit. So... The, the Should I Do spreadsheet evolved over time into the, the 100 fair play cards. And what I found was, and this is the science backs this up, um, 50-50 is the, absolutely the wrong equation. And I actually think 50-50 has held us back for 100 years because it's never 50-50. And then when you think it's going to be, there's a lot of disappointment and resentment and on and on and on. So what I realized, and the science backs this up, is that Perceived fairness 
is a better indicator than actual fairness, whatever that means in the home in terms of how you view your partnership. So my perceived fairness may look different, Lauren, than your perceived fairness. But what it comes out of after doing all the research is ownership. And so what I mean by that is everything you sort of need to know about fair play, you sort of can learn from the life-changing magic of mustard. (laughs) And what I mean by that is somebody... Somebody has to know your second son, Johnny, likes French's yellow mustard on his protein. Otherwise, he like gags on protein, right? So if he dips it in French's yellow mustard, he eats his protein. That's what I call conception. That's what organizational managers call conception. Then somebody has to put it on a list or notice that the French's yellow mustard is running low. That's what I call planning. Then someone actually has to get their butt to the store to purchase the French is yellow mustard. And that's what I call execution. And that's when men step in. And that's a big problem. Because they always bring home spicy Dijon. With the nasty seeds. They just do. And then men all over the country are saying to me, I'm never going back to the store for my wife. Because I went to the damn store. I got the mustard. And I can't ever do anything right. My love letter to men. Women all over the country were saying things to me like, well... What do you mean, Eve? You want me to trust him with making our living will? He can't even bring home the right type of mustard. And so it led to this trust spiral where women just kept on taking more and more and more back on their plates. So what happens when you own the full mustard situation? When the conception, planning, and execution stays together, when you have context? Well, if I'm the one who notices that my son needs a mustard and plan for the mustard and I execute mustard, then something beautiful happens. You actually bring home the yellow mustard. And so fair play is predicated on that notion of ownership. And so that's why I say it's not 50-50 because men are not taking 50 of the cards. Even stay-at-home dads often don't have 50 cards. But when you have ownership, there's perceived fairness. And so back what I just said, Perceived fairness is a better indicator of marital happiness. And that's what I kept seeing all over the country. When you own the mustard situation. And if you don't believe me and you say, well, yeah, right. That's definitely not how we do things in our family. Well, I just say, let me stop you. Because the most successful organizations do it that way. Netflix calls it the RRP, the rare responsible person. Where they're given context, not control. And you never wait to be told what to do. Apple coined the term DRI, which is the directly responsible individual, where you own a task from conception of planning to overseeing the execution. So I believe it's time to start treating our home with some respect and rigor, that our home is our most important organization. Because who would ever walk into your boss's office and sit there and say, so hey, what should we be doing today? I'll just wait here to tell me what to do. You wouldn't have a job the next day. But that's how we're doing things in our home. So I'm asking people to just bring some respect, some rigor, like I said, to treat our home like an organization. Because when you do, then things start to change. So what about what about the idea of who has more time? So you, you actually break down 
kind of three or so categories, maybe it's four categories of uh, situations that women are in, you know, either, yes. either the, well, you can, why don't you say what the categories are? Because, you know, you've got women who are working full time and you've got women who are staying at home and, um, somehow they seem to be equally responsible for <laughs> all the same things. But this idea that, especially the women who are staying home by, by choice or otherwise, theoretically have more time. So great question. Yeah. Let's I talk about the value question. of that time. Um, I think, well, the first thing again is back to fairness, right? Fair play is a very customizable situation. So my fair is not going to look the same as your fair. Again, why I think 50-50 is the wrong equation. Because what does 50-50 mean in a stay-at-home marriage where maybe you are taking on more of the marriage, you know, the responsibilities in the home? But back to your question, Lauren, about time. So why is fair play not just a card game? I wish I could just like hand out decks. But what I realized was that, and you've said this, the tone sort of switch, switches. The first half of the book really is, has to be some consciousness raising. And then you can go to the South Beach diet part where I give you like what to eat and when to eat it. But, and that's where men come in because they do like the prescriptive stuff. But the beginning was so important because of my finding. I had this giant finding that I wasn't expecting. And it sort of predicates everything that comes after in fair play. And it was this idea that men, women and society view men's time as finite, like diamonds, and women's time is infinite, like sand. So what do I mean by that? Well, men were saying things like, my, t- my power hours, I make more money, she has more time. So we were hearing it from men that they're, we know that from equal pay. We go into the office for the same amount of hours, we're paid less for those hours. But what I didn't expect was that the worst purveyors of not valuing their time would actually be women. And so women all over the country were saying things to me like, of course I should pick up the extra slack in my home because my husband makes more money than me. Not true. Other women were saying to me, I do more in the home because I'm just wired differently. I'm a better multitasker. So I went to the top neuroscientists in this country to find out that that's 100% not true. And one actually said to me off the record, don't use this in the book, but you can use this on your tour. Imagine you can convince half the population that they're better at wiping asses and doing dishes. How great for the other half of the population. <laughs> That's that multitasking message. I Hence gotta, that we have, uh, yeah. you know, there's a hundred uh, CEOs on the Forbes list this month. And guess what they all have in common except for one. They all are men. Okay. Other women were saying to me, in the time it takes me to tell him how to do it, I might as well do it myself. So I went to the top behavioral economists who think only about long-term thinking. 1,000% not true in terms of long-term planning. And my favorite were the two people with the same job. Yeah, we're both colorectal surgeons. Yeah, we're both shipping supervisors. But my husband's really busy and overwhelmed, and I just find the time. And so I like to say, you know, unless we're somehow Albert Einstein and we know how to fuck with the space-time continuum, we definitely can't find time. There's literally no way to find time, but there is a way to, there is time choice of how you use your time. And if I have less choice over how I use my time, then my time is less valued. So having to break those down for women, especially was really important. So a lot of the book is looking at our own views of how we view our own time. And so I like to say, imagine a world where, where all time is created equal, right? Where we actually really believe that an hour holding our child's hand in the pediatrician's office is just as valuable 
as an hour in the boardroom. If that becomes true, then guess what? Men will be more likely to do it. And then we'll start having some real changes in those workplaces. So all time is created equal. That's where the fundamental premise came from. So that, I mean, that is a huge societal shift, Yes. right? And, you know, I guess change starts at home. But how, I mean, what, what have, you, have you learned about how that might ultimately ripple out to being rewarded in our larger society? I mean, what, what do you think needs to change kind of from other directions? That's a great question. Um, I, I'll tell two, can I tell a two-minute story that actually sure. illustrate some yeah. sort of change that's happening? Um, so I'll tell you a story about uh, my friend Julian Ed who wanted to try fair play around the holidays last year. It's a terrible time to try anything new. But this actually was after the manuscript was submitted, so you're hearing a story that's actually not in the book. So Ed is the type of guy who said things to me like, I'm the CEO outside the home, and my wife's the CEO inside the home. So throw up, okay? But that's Ed. I like him, but that's, that's sort of the way he came at this. And so Julie wanted to try fair play because she was super overwhelmed, and she says to me, um, my mom just entered the hospital. Ed says he wants to help. Um, I'm taking the kids to school. I'm working part-time. I'm still making their lunches. I'm trying to decorate the Christmas tree, try to do a holiday card, um, plan our Christmas travel. And I'm at my breaking point. So I said to her, well, what's breaking you? And she said, the <laughs> Brody's second, my second son Brody's second grade secret Santa project. Because it has to be made from scratch. I always say thank you to the schools. It's so nice to do that to us around the holidays. But they do. And so she said to me, well, typically, if I hadn't heard about your fair play concepts, I would just give Ed a list of all the things I need to get for, for me for the Secret Santa project. And when I got home from sitting my, my mother in the hospital, I'd be building the project with Brody. But you're telling me not to do that. You're telling me to ask Ed, CEO outside the home, to own the homework, this one homework project for one day, one card for one day. And I said, yes, I am asking you to do that. And so Julie said to me, well, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Like, that's completely not our habit. And she was sort of panicking because she wouldn't have the tools to ask him to own the homework card for this project. So fair play at its core is really based on values. It's not a scorekeeping exercise where you throw cards at your partner. I ask you to back it up to what is your why. So I did that with Julie. And I said, why? Why do you value this project? Let's just start with that. Like, why is this the project that's breaking you? And so she said to me, well, it's the signature second grade project because we're supposed to be teaching our kids that it's not, Christmas is not about $100 Nerf guns. It's about a lack of materialism and the fact that you can get a nice homemade gift that you actually are excited to open means a lot to me in the school. Okay. I felt, I was feeling like that was a very articulate answer. And then she says, on top of it, my son Brody drew the name of the new girl at school and I watch her, you know, I, I'm the one who drops off in the morning because I have a part-time job. And so I watch this little girl sort of walk around and no one's really talking to her and it would be really nice if my son, who's popular and athletic and who has been at the school since kindergarten, would make something really nice for this new girl. Like maybe it would make her feel more welcome and it would foster empathy for him. So I tear up every time, you know, when she said that, I still tear up telling that story. So it felt very powerful to me, her why. So I said, just say that to Ed. 
just what you just said to me. When you're calm, not when you're feeling overwhelmed, but when you're calm, articulate that. It's exactly what you just said to me, say to him. So I was interviewing a lot of people at the time, so I almost forgot about checking back in with them, but I'm so happy I did because Ed gets on the phone and tells me that he, right after Julie told him that, he began Googling secret Santa projects for little girls with his son Brody. Remember, this is CEO outside the home guy. And they, that's what I call conception because they decide on a popsicle stick jewelry box. And then he tells me that they start writing down on a list everything they need to build that project. So they wanted colored, this is all Ed's details, they wanted colored popsicle sticks, glue, glitter, and Brody even wanted the little girl not to have to use two hands to open her jewelry box. So they were buying a knob for the box that was on their list. So that's what I call, in fair play, the planning. And then Ed tells me that he found this really cool store named Michael's. And it wasn't even that difficult because you could just go to one store and get everything you need. I said, wow, that sounds like a really cool store. (laughs) And they go to Michael's, they pick up everything they need for this project, and they come home and they start building it. And so Julie chimes in and says, well, my life changed in that moment. And I said, well, that's a pretty, you know, big statement. So what, what was changing for you in that moment? And she said when she saw Brody and Ed on the floor working on gluing these pieces together for this popsicle stick jewelry box, that she noticed that Ed had glitter on his hands. And it still makes me tear up because I was thinking, you know, and she said to me, I said, well, what was making that so meaningful to you? And she said, because it finally felt like he was in it with me. And because glitter is a fucking pain in the ass to get out. And it's always in her hair and on her hands. And how cool if he actually gets it on his hands and hair and realizes that. And so that sort of got me thinking, right, about small micro changes. I didn't ask this man to take 100 cards. I didn't even ask him to take homework for the year or the month. This was ownership of one card for one project. And his wife gave him trust to do it. And so imagine all men have glitter on their hands because back to what you said about societal change that starts in the home. So Ed's also a very high up position at a very important East coast company. What if he recognizes that there's value in doing secret Santa projects? Maybe he'll let his employees leave earlier. Maybe he'll understand that women, their time matters. And so we should pay them the same, but I do think it all begins with glitter. (laughs) Yeah. The arts, the ants of the That's art right. world. Hand it out. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Um, well, what? Okay, I actually have to ask you about the CEO of the home business. Yeah. Because I, I just, I was just chatting with someone this weekend who said that that's what their tax advisor put down on her tax return yeah. as her title, and she was happy about it. Okay. But, but you're, you're like, Ugh. so what, 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 what's, what is the downside of that? The downside of that is that it means that ownership of every single card is landing on the woman. Mm. And nobody can hold all the cards. I mean, in single mother households, yes, we, they do try to hold all the cards like my mother did and stuff falls through the cracks and there's societal issues for not valuing that. We could talk all day about single mothers. But if you have the solution, privilege to have a partner at home, I say to you, nobody should be holding all the cards. And so again, it's also what I found 
was that men like Ed, so let me just tell you another thing, one last thing about Ed that I don't often tell, but in this context, I think it's important. He also told me that Brody, his son, started crying in the car on the way back from Michael's because he was sad his grandmother was in the hospital. And I think the reason Ed told me that, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I want to go back and ask him. I think he told me that because he felt privileged that his son was finally confiding in him. And there's a connection there when your son's willing to be vulnerable and cry to you. And what does that do for him? And so people know I love these type of stories. So I got a call two days ago from a client in Seattle who told me he was at a funeral, so not to get all existential. And he said, you're going to love this story about the funeral. I said, well, that's really cool. You think I'm going to love stories about funerals, (laughs) but tell me why I'm going to love this story. He said, this man, again, very powerful man in my client's realm, my HBO, you know, succession realm, um, passed away. He wasn't my client. He was a friend of my client. And his daughter, so even though he's super powerful, I guess he was always a tooth fairy. He held the magical beings card for his kids. And his daughter read all the poems she ever received from him as a tooth fairy at his funeral. Mm-hmm. And so I think about what is that for men? What do we care about at the end of our lives, right? We care about those things, those connections we make. And so I saw men who were getting ownership, not given a list, not what I call rat fucked, the random assignment of a task, but actually given ownership, they were getting more meaningful connections out of their family life. And so it's not good for men either to live in the CEO of the home, CEO outside the home, siloed living. They, even if it's not, like I said, 50-50, trust in the home matters. When you're doing it together, I saw huge shifts in how people were interacting with each other and their children. Yeah. Well, let's, I, I think it's worth spending a few minutes talking just functionally about how this works because I've been having fun pitching it to various people. Oh, good. <laughs> God, amazing. I, I, I got my ambassador. Book and I'm like, yes. this is going to change everyone's life. This is going to change my life. But how you, but I was actually, I, I was able to go to my husband and say, well, I have to prepare for this interview. Right, right, right. So I need you to play this game with me that's going to create more efficiency in the home. And I like watched to see what his reaction was. And I was like, or, and cause you've got several pitches <laughs> right. that you can yes, make to I your do. partners, yes. right? And I was like waiting to see which one he'd most respond yeah. to. Meanwhile, my 14 year old daughter is listening in cause she hears everything and she keeps asking it. me, mom, what's this game? Right. Like, are That's we ever going to cool. play the game? So I'm like ready to take a pack of cards. Love it. Yes. You're going to take the cards. So, so Love let's it. talk about you. I mean, you've obviously referenced the hundred cards and, the, and a few of the different categories and that you need to have the concept uh, planning and execution. Yes. Yes. Um, there's also things like minimum standard of care yes, and all that. Yes. So could you, could you just give a little rundown of how this game yes. works? Yes. Remind me to get right back to that. Cause you just said something important about communication. Okay. And then we'll get right to the practicality of it. So just one quick thing about how women communicate Um, and men too. So a lot of women out there were saying to me, very powerful women even, and ones that again have less economic privilege, that they can never have a conversation about these issues in the home. It's hard. That they didn't want to bring it up, that this was too tricky. But so one woman said that to me and then completely unironically, completely unironically, about 20 minutes later, she's like, so yeah, so when my husband didn't put the clothes in the dryer, I just dumped the wet clothes on his pillow. <laughs> Another woman said the same thing. I can't have a conversation about this in my home, but then I find out she has an Instagram account. Can't make this shit up. She has an Instagram account called the shit my husband doesn't pick up. 
And she takes pictures of all of it and she posts it on Instagram. <laughs> so what I'd like to say to all you women and men out there is I promise you, you are already communicating. I will go on your Nest camera, watch you for a day, circle every single time you are communicating about home life, even if I don't see your words coming out of your mouth. You are already communicating. So when I could say to women, we were having a conversation shift, but not a start. Women felt a little bit less scared to have these conversations. And so that is one way to do it, to say we're going to have a shift and not a start because we are already communicating about home life. Now, another thing is if you need lots of tools, Fairplay gives you those tools. They give you all the mediation tools that I have out of my practice. And, but it's also, give, again, back to the work we have to do on ourselves. Why Fairplay is not just a card game. I ask women, I have a lot of quizzes in the book, not just on who said it when, but on what type of personality profile are you, what toxic time messages have you given yourself, and also what type of communication vulnerability do you have? So a big communication vulnerability that I had and a lot of women have in my data set was they love to give feedback in the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and so when emotion is high, cognition is low. When you're giving that feedback in the moment, it's super unhelpful. But we love to do it. So my editor laughed at me because I had about 20 pages of explaining to women why not to give feedback in the moment from a neuroscientist perspective, from a psychologist, from me from clergy. And so she said, you can't, you know, I get it that you really want to get this point across that you have to hold your tongue to a time when emotion is low and cognition is high, but we can't spend 20 pages dissecting this. They're just going to have to believe you with three supporting experts. So it's about four pages in the book of that point. And so, you know, you, you have to start with giving, using tools, sitting down, communicating at a time where you're calm. And that's where the cards help. So back to the practicalities. Yep. So if you're communicating, at not, not giving feedback in the moment, and you're sitting down when you're calm, what happens is you have a full set of tools, right? You, your brain is in a place that can have conversations that are more than just take the damn dishes card because I never want to do dishes again. That's when fair play fails. And that's sort of the beauty of why this took me seven years. It was all to get to the last chapter of the book, which is called the top 13 mistakes couples make and the fair play fix. Because I needed to have testing subjects from all walks of life that mirror the U.S. census to get a sense of what was tripping people up. So you get to read about all the people's mistakes and how to correct them. But a big mistake was jumping right to the division. Because it just became another list. So I did that. That was my first mistake before I used my own mediation training to sort of develop the system. I just sort of had this gamified idea and I gave Seth the garbage card. And so what started happening was I started just following him around the house, sort of as his shadow. I even like opened the door under the sink to just remind him that that's where the garbage liners were. And so he could like trip over it as he was trying to get a snack. And he stopped me one day and said, like, this garbage thing is not working because you're literally stalking me over garbage. <laughs> and I'm not going to own anything if this is what it feels like to own something because you're literally stalking me over garbage. So this is my own mistake of just jumping straight to the division. So that's when I had to back up and say, my entire mediation practice for a decade is based on values-based mediation, where I ask people, what is their why? 
So why am I not bringing that into the system? Well, it's because it's a really weird conversation to talk about your values over garbage. Who does that? (laughs) But what I found was that when you do that, it brings transformative change into the home, transformative change that lasts. And so that's what I started doing. I sat Seth down and said, so let me tell you why I value garbage. As you know, you went to my house. You saw what my apartment on Avenue C and 14th Street looked like. You saw the garbage bag. I mean, sorry, not even the garbage bag. The Chinese takeout bag that sat on a knob. You saw that there was no garbage can in my house growing up. What happened was garbage would spill on the floor every single day. It would have this little bag, it would overflow. And so I was a very dehydrated child because after sundown, I was afraid to turn on the light in the kitchen because we'd have cockroaches and water bugs that would just scatter everywhere. So I'm extremely triggered by garbage. But I never thought to tell Seth that. And so we sat down and I told him the story of my upbringing. And then he responds by saying, well, I slept on a Domino's pizza box as my pillow my whole fraternity life. So I don't really care about garbage. I actually like garbage. It doesn't bother me. And so what happens, right, when you have such different values over something as simple as garbage? Well, then you borrow what I did from the law and from medicine, and you come up with what's reasonable, a minimum standard of care. And that's what we did. So I said to Seth, he said, I will hold this card. And what feels reasonable to me is if garbage goes out once a day. And I will take it out once a day at 7 p.m. I'll put it in my calendar like a work appointment as long as you never fucking mention the word garbage ever again. (laughs) And ever since that day, garbage goes out at 7 p.m. And sometimes we redeal when he's not home and we take other cards. But that's what happens. 20-minute conversation. You invest in those conversations. And it's a lifetime of change. And so when women say, well, I don't want to spend 20 minutes talking about garbage. I, I, I love to just grab their phones. And I go to their screen time app. And I promise you, they've been on Instagram or Facebook longer than 20 minutes. Invest in your partnerships. Treat the home with some respect. Because it pays off in spades. And that's how we're going to get women to become less than one one lonely woman on the Forbes 100 list. (laughs) I really believe change starts in the home. Yeah. Well, one of the benefits, we're, we're, we're close to the question time, actually. So if you guys have questions, formulate them, and someone will walk around with a mic and take them. But um, before we get to that, and there's, there's so much more to cover. I know, we're going to run know, out of time. It's all in the book. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I was really excited about in reading this book was, aside from the very obvious benefits is this notion of unicorn time and that that gets to be a card. And I, you know, when I saw your book, I'm like, what's this little unicorn right, 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 doing right. on the scale there? So can you explain what you mean by that? And, and let's, let's talk about it. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, this idea of unicorn time, unicorn space. I call it that because it's like the mythical equine. It's this beautiful creative space that we used to have before kids and partnerships, but it doesn't freaking exist unless we reclaim it. So it's really this idea, and it changed the way I wrote the book. I really am an organization manager. I'm a mediator. I get to presenting, you know, I get to the presenting problem, the underlying problems. But what stopped me, which kept pulling me back into the fact that this was bigger than just a game, was not only the time, toxic time message we were giving ourselves. It was the identity loss that was being reported in so many women after children. I don't know who I am anymore. One woman who had three Ivy League degrees 
said to me when I said, what is your unicorn space? What is your creative space that makes you uniquely you? And how do you share that with the world? She said, I don't even understand what that question means. I, it's physics. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I'm an object at rest. Objects in motion stay in motion. Objects at rest stay at rest. And I'm an object at rest. I wouldn't even know how to answer that question. And why that was so important was because I asked a very provocative question of men. I asked men all over this country, are you proud of your wife, of your wife or your partner? Men always went to, she's an amazing mother. Okay, I said, that's great. That's a role. And then they said, I couldn't do it without her. I said, that's great. That's a personal assistant. So tell me more. If a woman had her self-worth, something that made her her, right? Whether it's volunteering with the, fi- you know, the firefighters like one woman or one woman I interviewed who does American Ninja Warrior or for me, the gender division of labor or baking pies or whatever it is. Then the man immediately went to that. It was never like, oh, she's an amazing dental hygienist. One guy said to me, the dental hygienist's husband, my wife's perfecting rhubarb. And he went off for 15 minutes about how hard rhubarb is to work with because she wants to add rhubarb to her pie collection that she's going to enter in some contest. I don't bake myself like that, but I guess apparently rhubarb gets very runny. And so you have to like perfect it when you're baking. But this man knew so much about rhubarb because it was his wife's passion. He was picking up on her passion. And so I say, it's not about us shaming ourselves to say we need our, our spouses need to be proud of us, but it's about us being proud of ourselves, feeling a little bit like we were before we had these roles of being parent, partner, and worker. And it really, really affects women and men too. There were some men who said, I really need to find my unicorn space as well completely. We both need it. And we can't resent our partners for taking it. So I'll just end on that. That's my Harper's Bazaar article. You can look out for it. It's coming out, I think, tomorrow. It's called The Real Midlife Crisis. What happens when the person who loves you the most resents you the most? Because my finding was the three things that most people said made them happy were adult friendships, self-care, True self-care, not CBD oil pedicures, but like working out or walking on the beach with your dog and unicorn space. But those are always the, the, but those were the three things that we didn't want to give our spouse any time for. So it's not about breast implants or a Ferrari. It's about bringing back in our happiness trio, which starts with unicorn space and saying that we all value this. I deserve this as much as you do, even if it's unpaid. And that was the hardest for stay-at-home mothers. Because they said to me, I'm already doing all this unpaid work. How can I add in baking pies on top of that? But they have to because it's about your marriage. And then what I found out from the research is also about our longevity. It's about our longevity, being who we are and being able to share that with the world. And a little, even if it means just like bringing a pie to your neighbor, that is about our longevity. Yeah. And, and it's also just about being interesting. You talk about being interesting yes. in the book, interesting to yourself. And you have a right to be interested to in your own people. life. Yeah. You have a right to be interested in your own life. And so many women said to me, I don't feel I have that right to be interested in my own life anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Started to end on such a downer. <laughs> the good news is that the after, the after, which is a sequel that I'm writing now, is all these women and men who rediscovered their unicorn space. And it's the most inspiring thing to watch. I'm really excited yeah. to read that. I know we're supposed to go to questions, but I just have to... <laughs> I just have to say, I really, I feel like that it, it is, I mean, I actually, how many people here would say they have unicorn space that, you know, there's something that they really value and they get time to do. That's awesome. I mean, is that a good percentage? That's great. About, I love what, this room. That's right. Keep doing the room. it. Yes. Keep doing yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. So for those of you who don't, 
There's right. a, a little work, a little workbook. work workbook on how to get yeah. it back. And I would, but I will say that before, when I was in Blueberry's time, right when I was sobbing on the side of the road, anytime someone would forward me a find your passion and you know article, I would say that's just another fucking thing I don't have time to do. So thank you for shaming me. You want me to have self care? Great. Then you take my kids to school and try to mark up a contract with a pen in your vagina. <laughs> You try to get some self-care time. So I found these very condescending messages to women along with lower your standards, all these other messages I could tell you about all night because it's just putting more shit on us. So I only believe in unicorn space in the context of domestic rebalance. Yeah. Only in that context. Alone, it's just another thing on our list of shit we don't have time to do. Sorry for all the cursing. (laughs) All right. So questions. raise, Raise your hand. Crystal's got the mic. Hi, and thank you so much. Um, It's been great hearing you. Um, I have two questions. The first question is, what about outsourcing? Let's say, what if, like my husband, I have to outsource a lot in order to to free up space? To Pet Butler, great service, comes and picks up poop in your yard. And and one of their selling points is it will keep your marriage happier, and it does, you know, because I'm not the only one picking up poop. Absolutely. Um, So I find a way for things to get done, but somebody once, actually somebody younger than me, where I was very interested, and it was like it it stung a little bit, but she she said to me, she's like, but don't you want him to be helping? You want him to be helping out. No, I don't believe that at all, actually. Okay. I like what you're saying better. Okay, so that that's my one thing. What about outsourcing? Where is outsourcing? If so, if you're out, able to outsource, is it still? It's a great question. So, very good question. So that was one of the toxic time messages I talk about in the book that men love saying to me. Well, if she just needs, she's so overwhelmed, just get help. Yeah. So the great news about help is it's the person who gets their ass to the store to buy the mustard, but you're still conceiving and planning. And that takes time, and that's cognitive labor, and it's actually linked to, um, so women have three times as much anxiety disorders as men. It's linked to the cognitive labor. So I say, women will say, well, why can't he just do it? I say, let him outsource as much as he wants of execution to whoever he wants, as long as it's not you. So as long as your husband, if he's holding pet care, let him have the roto-rooter dog person or whatever they're called come. But he has to hold the conception and planning of pet care. So that happened to my father, actually, who became involved in my life later on. He has been hearing about these things with my stepmother and really wanted to try fair play. And so he calls me and says, I take Milo to doggy daycare in the morning. I said, okay, that's completely not fair play. I have no idea if you've been listening to me. <laughs> you know, I've been talking to you about this for a year. You're supposed to own pet care for the day. And he said, well, that's a lot of work because I'd have to feed Milo twice and give him his vitamins and then pick him up from daycare and pet him. (laughs) And I said, yeah, I'm asking you to hold the pet care card for just Wednesday, the day you take Milo to daycare. And that was very provocative for my father. Well, some, he didn't hold any cards for us growing up. So, you know, whatever, (laughs) but he did it at 80. So all dogs can learn new tricks. That's what he said to me. So own pet care. Outsource as much as you want of the execution, but it's the, the C and the P, the, co- the conception, the planning. That's what really is holding women down, and that is actually linked to our anxiety disorders. And then you want to talk about the helping? Yeah, well, I, I, like I say, you know, and there's been other books that have said this too, but helping 
as another toxic tie message, I don't, I want your help as a, a card holder. I don't want you to help me though, right? So again, it's back to this idea of who is holding the ownership of that card, even if it's just for one day. So if you're the one to have the app on your phone and you're calling the dog walker, huge re- mental relief for me and other women. For me, I started with one card. So as you know, garbage was the was card one, but card two was extracurricular sports. Because my husband really believed that he was owning extracurricular sports. Because he would take my kids to the Little League field. So when I finally explained to him that I was surveying all of their friends about what sport to play, that's the conception, logging onto the some form portal thing for AYSO, and I didn't even know how to do that, ordering cleats on Amazon, returning cleats on Amazon when it came in the wrong size, somehow Venmoing some coach for some coach's gift, peeling oranges for, co- for snack day, for snack mom day, owning extracurricular sports. So when he fully owned extracurricular sports, and let him ex- and he executes pra- he executes the outsourcing of practices. He doesn't take my kids to practice, but he knows when those practices are, and he knows who's carpooling them to practice. And I never had to think about extracurricular sports again. I realized that was eight hours of my week because I have two kids now who are in full time sports. Eight hours of my week I got back from just that one card. But let him outsource shit out of it as long as I don't have to do it. <laughs> yeah. Right, we have another question. Um, I wanted to ch- ask you about communication with people outside of your home who assume you are the she fault because great question. No um, one's asked me that yet. I, I love have it. Never, I have never initiated a carpool email or text thread that my husband was not also on, and everyone else sends carpooling email and text to me alone and leaves him off. As one example, and I'm finding the same thing happening, um, that my son is never asked to babysit and my daughter always is, even though they're like about the same age. And communicating with everyone else about how he's taking ownership and responsibilities for things in our home. That's a great question. Literally, we've been on this tour for two weeks. No one's asked me that yet. Woohoo. Um, it's a great question. Actually, I had a lot harder time communicating with the outside world than I did even with my husband. But the good news is our community, because I'm obsessed with this topic for seven years, understands the lingui- lang- language of cards, even our school. So when I say to them, my husband holds the daily disruption card for this week. So what that means, and I tell the teachers that, if my child's bounced for some disciplinary issue or they're sick because they have pertussis, he gets the phone call. But it requires a joint language, right? So that's why I'm asking everybody out here not just to play, but to help me develop this language so that we're not only communicating individually, but that our communities understand what it means when there's full ownership. I even want to, I've been trying, I actually went to Evite, a friend works at Evite, and tried to understand why it is that you have to individually email each person because that feels like very inefficient. Like why can't there be like a family thing so both men, it's not so gendered, men and women get the birthday invitations. They told me it's a software glitch and that they've actually been trying to do that. But it does take that type of change, right? To say, and it's hard. I had to educate my father-in-law for about eight months on the fact that Seth held extracurricular sports. It feels rude. It does, but but it was great because he's actually, my father-in-law is more than most. So I said, I'm trying to get, Seth to be more like you. 
And I really believe, thank you for taking my, for out, for executing Taekwondo. But Seth is now in charge of the conception of planning in Taekwondo. So you can execute all you want as long as you talk directly to Seth. So you read, you redirect. Redirect. If, if the, if the, if it's incoming to you, but it's not you your redirect. card, you redirect. But of course I can redirect. Redirecting at the time where it was like blueberries or should I do was just completely with no context. And so Seth would have been like, I'm not, well, I'm not doing this. Right. So it's in the context of the system. Now that he knows, so it takes, it starts with your playing because Seth knows what he's responsible for. And then once he knows what he's responsible for, then we can communicate it to the outside world. We can't just passive aggressively redirect. No, no. Because <laughs> that's what the last thing I wanted to say. Thank you for saying that. Because what I was seeing women Literally. doing without playing was they were trying to take fair play on and saying, oh, well, he's in charge of this. But then, <laughs> but then um, the, ma- the, the, the male and that partnership was saying, I ju- I'm on some random ass text about some birthday gift. I have no idea for who this is for. What am I supposed to buy? Is this a girl or a boy? Don't do that. Own it. Not rats. No more rat fucks. No random assignments of tasks. Hand over the full card. Hand over that full card. Don't ask. Don't. Oh, he can install the app for to get the dog walk. Nope. Just like my dad, own pet care for Wednesdays. That's the that's the big habit change that I'm asking for. Hello. Um. So something that resonated for me in the book was you mentioned that women, especially stay-at-home moms, expect more out of our children than we do out of our husbands. Yes, great. Which definitely rang true for me, but it also kind of sparked this idea for me of, I have older children, and is there any room in the system for them to hold cards? Yeah. I love um, that question. That's a great so, question. There you go. Well, first of all, thank you for um, being such a diligent reader that you, you saw that in there. Um, so very helpful question. And I think, um, if you hadn't set that context, it would have been a different answer. So a lot of women will ask me, what, how can I get my kids to play? Um, and I always say, well, it starts with modeling first because it is, you saw in the book, it's more likely that women are willing to delegate to their children than they are their husbands, partly because of the, I'm afraid to have these communications, but I'm willing to dump shit on his pillow situations. So when you model, then children get this language. So you, you just, you had the most beautiful answer about your 14 year old daughter. She was curious about the cards. Yeah. My favorite thing, which is actually, according to psychologists, wasn't so clinically great, but I did this just for three kids that I loved. I asked them after their parents did just the first step of who owned which cards. I asked the kids to report on who they thought owned each card. <laughs> and I got to see sort of that over-reporting that men love to do, statistically. Um, but yeah, so kids can come in once you've modeled it for them. And my children now know that that the system. So they will say things to me like, who's holding daily disruptions this week? If I'm sick, are they calling mom or dad? They understand it's not a she fault. They understand even the unicorn space card which you may have seen, I talk about this really quickly in the conclusion about, I don't know if any of you have seen that movie Sing. Ironically, it's Reese is the pig. She's Rosita, who has 23 piglets, and Norman, her husband, doesn't ever see her. And she always says to him, I used to be an amazing singer. I used to be an amazing singer. He says, well, that's great, but can you just please unclog the toilet, honey? And she enters this talent competition, and at the end, again, I'm spoiling, spoiling things for everybody here, she she is in this beautiful singing competition and Norman rediscovers her and they kiss and their kids are so excited for her. I'm watching this with my son, Ben, 
when it came out three years ago, whenever, when I'm doing all of my research. And he says to me, mom, Rosita found her unicorn space. And so I started sobbing. And I think he was a really con- concerned for me. <laughs> I had like a complete mental breakdown in front of him. Um, but I kept thinking, wow, there's one, there's at least one man with testicles and a penis out there. He may be six that understands the, the value of a woman retaining her self-worth after children. <laughs> so I've done my job. I've literally done my job. It really is. Yes. I mean, it's the next generation. If you're modeling, we're modeling for I, our kids. We are modeling. Yeah. He even understands the unicorn space card. So you model first and then you can, when they understand the idea of ownership, it actually really is helpful. And some actual single, I have a single mom in my beta tester system who actually gives her older sons cards because, you know, this recognition, it's really hard to hold them all. And so it just becomes a new language for anybody. Even somebody who actually is younger said that she wants to, she wants to do her own fair play for roommates. Yeah. Because she's been using this, she's been using this, she understands it's for her marriage later on, but she started using the, um, the language with her roommate. Which is really cool. Yeah, my roommates and I could have used that. Yeah, college. right? Yeah. Um, we have another question over here. This is going to be our last audience question. Okay, okay, she's great. had her hand up a long yes, time. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. I really enjoyed your talk. And I cannot wait to read the book. But, um, so my question is, how do you uh, suggest dealing when there's a disappointment about your partner not holding up the card they're holding. So like I like your example of trash. I also find trash triggering. So I could imagine other situations where like my partner would also, or my husband would promise to take out the trash, but would probably, um, you know, often forget. And so there would be a like, oh, I got distracted. I was working late on my computer. I'm sorry I didn't take out the trash. That might happen a, a lot. Where, the, where there was a lack of follow-through, or I forgot it was the day I was responsible for pickup first. I was doing sports today. How do you recommend dealing with question. that kind of situation where someone is, where you, and how to decrease your own anxiety about follow-through because that's your current mode? That's why you go to values first. I actually, this is why Fair Play started as my love letter to women, but it's actually become my love letter to men because I actually don't see them doing that. When you give them a rat fuck, the random assignment of a task, like this guy in White Plains, New York, who said that he was locked out of his house over a glue stick, I totally get it. He's driving around White Plains telling me, do I go into New York City and go get a hotel room? Am I going to be left back in my home? He's given a random assignment of a task in the middle of his work day, go get me a glue stick. He's going to forget that. And so his wife's perspective is, I've been working three weeks on this homework project, and I just needed that last thing to glue the damn... Xerox photos from the library of Albert Einstein onto the poster board. But my love letter to men is that when you sit down with the values conversations, I actually don't see them dropping a lot of balls, but we all make mistakes. And so what the advice I say is you hold it for check-in. This system is predicated on a weekly communication that gets easier and easier as you do it. So Seth and I used to do it because behavioral economists say do short-term reward substitution. So we would do it and then we'd go get tacos and tequila on Friday nights. And we'd say to our kids, we're redealing our cards, so we'll be home a little bit later, but it's, it's going to be good for you because we're investing in our marriage. So that's, and then now we've been doing this for three years, so we just do our check-in from 11 to 11.30 during the workday. So you've got to hold your feedback. Remember, no feedback in the moment. So even if they forget the garbage, just wait, or you take it out yourself that time, and then you say, I noticed that maybe this happened when you're calm. The other thing is, I talk about in the book a lot, this is a whole chapter because it became 
the trust cycle, why women weren't holding cards, was just you let the, your partner carry through on their mistake. We all make mistakes. This one man said, we had a CP, I had a CPE fail over the magical beings card. So I love that because A, that, that sentence has never been uttered before in the English language. <laughs> it's conception, planning, and execution. So his CPE fail, which you'll learn in the book, was that he actually forgot to be the tooth fairy. That's a pretty bad mistake. And if his wife had been in a normal pattern, she'd be like, I fucking hate you. You ruined our child's life. But he, the difference about him owning it, right, was that he took the blame. He didn't say, you didn't remind me, which so many other tooth fairy men were saying across this country. He admitted that it was his mistake because he was supposed to be owning that for the week his wife is away. So what he told me he did, this is how he carried through on the mistake. So again, is it the end of the world? It could feel like it for women. But she held her feedback and said, I will let you carry through on your mistake. So what happened was he emailed with the child, the tooth fairy, toothfairy at gmail.com and said, where are you? It turns out that actually someone responds, which is really creepy. Wow. Somebody has that email address and they respond. So try it and you'll see. And then he told his child that, oh my God, you know, the tooth fairy said she had a thousand teeth that last night that fell out. And so she let me know when we emailed, she emailed me back that she's backlogged, but the, for the people she didn't get to last night, she's giving double the money. <laughs> and so that child got double the money the next night. But it was a beautiful carrying through on your mistake. And it may not be perfect. We all make these mistakes. But letting somebody own their mistake and carry through on it has amazing stories for me. But also, like again, sort of transformative change in their home. And so, but thank you for asking that. There is a whole chapter devoted to this idea of what happens if you're worried that they're not going to follow through on their card. All right. It's an informed tradition. Thank you all for your questions. Thank you. Really beautiful questions. questions. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for such a great moderating. Um, Well, thank you. Yeah. For writing this book. Oh, thanks. Um, Okay. Informed tradition is I get to ask you this question, which is what is your 60 second idea to change the world? Well, duh. You probably know this already. (laughs) My 60 second idea to change the world is that. All time is created equal. That, again, I will say it again, that an hour holding your child's hand at the pediatrician's office is just as valuable to society as an hour in the boardroom. For women to step into their full power, I believe it's time to invite men to step into their full power in the home. And that all starts with valuing time equally. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, as a reminder, well, obviously, Eve Rodsky. I'm Lauren Schiller. Okay. Thanks, guys.